0: of big data, widely accessible academic research, and instantaneous communication. Measured just by quantity, we are the most information-saturated society in history. Whether this flood of information has actually improved our understanding is another question. My guest on this episode of Hardly Working, Michael Blasland, argues the world is far more contingent and unpredictable than our studies, from health treatments to social science, would lead us to believe. According to Blasland, scientific knowledge as it's developed and used today may obscure as much or more than it reveals. He says we are, quote, counting the things we can count, not the things we should be counting. We have highly intelligent quantitative algorithms to study and analyze our public policies, social interventions, and behaviors. But they are unable to account for the context, uncertainty, and the unknown unknowns that swirl around and through our experimental environments. We tend to compensate for complexity by excessively simplifying our questions and our data leading to false conclusions and therefore false knowledge. Ultimately, this false knowledge and the excessive confidence it breeds hinders the progress we seek to achieve. Michael Blaslin, author of The Hidden Half, How the World Conceals Its Secrets is here to tell us just how much we don't know and how inexplicable the world we live in is. Michael Blasson, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. Pleasure. Well, terrific book. I really enjoyed all of it in large part because as someone else said, it affirms all of my priors <laughs> about how the how I think the world operates. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about it. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you came to the book why you wrote it, and then what you think it's sort of core messages are.
1: Well, I've been a journalist for a number of years now, and I spent quite a large part of my career in the BBC in the UK working on current affairs radio programs, for example. And I can remember a discussion many years back now with one of my collaborators at that time. And we were thinking about the British membership of what was then called the European Monetary System. This was a precursor to the to Monetary Union. And there were a number of conditions set out by the British government at that time, governing our joining of that system. Would we join or not? Well, it depended on various things, but one of the things it did not depend on was labor market flexibility. But if you read the theory about monetary unions, labor market flexibility was absolutely top of the pile. You needed to have some adjustment mechanism between different economies, and if you didn't have labor market flexibility, you were going to be in trouble, essentially. Now, were we measuring labour market flexibility in order to decide whether we had enough of it to join this system? No, we weren't. Why not? Because we couldn't. We didn't really have a device for measuring labour market flexibility between different jurisdictions within Europe in order to say whether it was sufficiently fluid between those places for the for the whole thing to work. So we just didn't bother. In other words, the key determinant probably of the success of the system was not going to be counted because it was hard to count. So. From that discussion, we said, "Okay, well, this is quite curious. We're counting the things we can count rather than the things we should count, <laughs> and those are because those are the things we can't count." This question of counting, just very broadly in public argument, how well do we do it in general? And out of that conversation, uh, sort of a set of extremely naive questions, really. We developed a radio show called More or Less, which has been running in the UK now for about 15 years and has a few uh, emulators around the world, actually. And that's what it did. It asked a lot of, frankly, damnful questions about the provenance of the data, the evidence that we have in public conversation about all manner of things, about educational performance, economic performance, comparisons of healthcare performance, you know, if you're, are you more likely to die in this hospital or that? hospital, developing the idea that really quantitative evidence was the language really of public argument. But it wasn't a language that many people spoke with much fluency. And a lot of those who claimed to speak it with a lot of fluency didn't really understand the basis on which they were using some of their terms. There's another problem
0: embedded in there, I think, that even if you speak the language, you may not have even the vocabulary that you think you have to describe the problems that you're trying to understand. Is that... I
1: think that's, that's absolutely right. We have a set of techniques, and we're required to model things in ways which are inevitably reductive, required simply because of the complexity of the problems we deal with to introduce a vast amount of relatively crude simplification. And I think we sometimes forget that principle. But it was out of that radio show anyway that I became interested in data, quantification, the language of communication around risk, for example. And from there, you can see where a book about the quality of our, the evidence for our general epistemic uh, right. <laughs> quality you know, is, is, is really there or not. So that's, that's where it grew from, and it's just been something I've been intrigued, fascinated by ever since. I
0: jotted down at one point that it's kind of a long series of provocations.
1: Your inscription
0: here at the beginning, the quote from Daniel Borson, the great menace to progress is not ignorance, but the illusion of knowledge. And then just kind of goes, takes off from there into this assault, really a siege on the idea that scientific knowledge as it is portrayed and collected and analyzed in modern society, may in fact be obscuring more than it, than it tells. So, talk about that just a little bit.
1: Well, I think at the heart of that quotation, which is the epigraph, as you say to the book, is a notion about overconfidence, You probably know the work of Daniel Kahneman inside out, you know, it was a great saying of Danny's that the worst of all our cognitive biases was overconfidence. I think this idea that false knowledge can be a bigger obstacle to progress than ignorance is the idea that our overconfidence, our belief in the quality of our knowledge is robust enough for us to do all kinds of things, to act in all kinds of ways, which could in fact be harmful. Which are not supported really by the kind of detail of evidence that we require in order to be confident of success, or at least not, we're not confident to the degree that we feel we are confident. We shouldn't be that confident because simply because the kind of problems we're trying to deal with are that much more complicated, that much more susceptible to the effects of noise or chance or luck or randomness, stochasticity, whatever you want to call it, now, these things which are pervasive, I think, in a lot of the sort of problems we deal with, when we discount them, when we rely on the bare simplified details that we were talking about earlier on, you know, the necessity of simplifying problems, we're prone to go badly wrong. And we're prone to go wrong more frequently than we expect to go wrong. So this, this problem of overconfidence, I think Kahneman is absolutely right. It's ubiquitous, and it's quite hard for us to see it because we limit our inquiry usually to the sort of terms that we're comfortable with using the tools and techniques that we're familiar with. And we're not accustomed, I think, really to thinking about the scope for error. We say we're skilled at taking uncertainty into account in our scientific investigations. I think we're not nearly skilled enough, is my judgment. And by the way, not just in science, I think in political knowledge in our personal knowledge of other people, in our business planning, in just about every realm of human endeavor, I think the same kind of problems arise. That's the nub of my anxiety. I'll call it different anxiety, if I may, that we are precociously clever. We are wonderful pattern spotters. We have ingenious tools of inquiry, but nature, by and large, is a lot smarter than we are. It's capacity for throwing as a curveball, for introducing complications, for devising confounders which we didn't think of, that we didn't incorporate into our models. These kind of problems, they crop up time and time again, and it's only by looking at what you call these provocations when you start rehearsing some of the instances where we go wrong that you begin to think. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> maybe there's something here. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe some of our knowledge is not quite as robust as we think we are. I, you know, I'd love to talk about some of those examples if you if you're happy to do that.
0: We're going to get there. You have a subheading early in the book in which you stand Nate Silver's book title on its head. His book was "The Signal and the Noise," and you say the noise is the signal. So that's worth exploring. <laughs> I think.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I, I think the general way that we talk about noise is if it's some kind of annoying residual. You do your experiments, and sure, you have a little bit of noise in there, and you know, the, the whole trick is to kind of get this out of the way, you know, that's the stuff we ignore. Yes, up to a point, <laughs> you know, sure, we want to identify those signals which are robust and regular and reliable, but in doing so, you may be just kind of chucking out half the entire effect or more. What happens if you start to address the sort of difficulties that we're talking about in understanding what's going on in the world? If you say, let's begin by trying to understand the extent of the noise itself, and think about noise as an irreducible, in many instances, an irreducible problem, and try to understand the contributors to that noise, so that we have some better sense, at least, of working out ways in which the signal is going to be disrupted whenever we try to use the information we've gained from that signal in some in new instance of, say, political or economic action.
0: So, is is noise another name for, for humility?
1: Well, in, I'm, in I'm big on humility, it may not come across, but <laughs> no, I, I think philosophers as this phrase, epistemic humility. Should we be aggressive, assertive about those things we believe we know, or should we always be cautious, tentative, inclined to re-examine them? inclined to retest them, cautious about extending them into new domains, because that's something we often do. We think we have a generalizable set of understanding, which we think we can apply to multiple different occasions in different places because they appear to have some resemblance to our initial problem. And very often, the kind of noise that causes a problem is noise which differs from place to place or from time to time, which defeats our attempts at generalization. There's a very simple principle here that What knowledge is, is the extension of understanding from one context to another. It's the observation that things repeat in some way, you know, that if I pull the brakes on my bicycle it stops, you know, and it stopped last time and it'll stop next time, you know, and I can see a mechanism that looks as if it ought to stop, you know, because I've seen mechanisms like that in other places. So this kind of extension from one circumstance to many others is essentially what knowledge is. Now, if it doesn't generalize in that sense, then it's not knowledge. And my contention is that usually the extensions we attempt are not sufficiently sensitive to the kind of differences between place or between occasion, between times, between circumstances, which. All too often they, they, they make a mockery of what we thought was knowledge. And at that point we go back to our knowledge and say, well maybe we should think about that again. You know, was it so so robust a principle as we thought it was? Does it extend quite as far as we thought it did? That's a good segue into some of these cases.
0: That you examine in the book. I mean, I've got a couple of my favorites, the study of the cows and the study of the toilets. But if you've got other ideas of things you'd like to talk about, please go right ahead. But touch on a few of these sort of concrete examples that point out the limitations of the way that we approach knowledge, particularly in the social sciences.
1: We'll get to medical science a little bit later, but in the social sciences. Well, I'll, I'll begin with the toilets in India because there is an enormous problem of open defecation as it's called. You can imagine the kind of sanitation difficulties of public health, consequences of there being no adequate sewerage in a country, and around the world it's believed that something over a billion people don't have adequate sanitation. They do just squat in a field, basically. Now, in India, there is an enormous program to try and improve the sanitation in that country. But the rate at which they would have to build toilets if it was a state endeavor is just overwhelming. It's an unimaginable frequency. I mean, they'd have to build one every few seconds, you know, for a period of decades, really, in order to reach the sort of levels of population penetration that they hope to. So there's a question, can you persuade people to build their own? And do you think, well, I can foresee a few kind of obvious problems. Maybe they wouldn't have enough money to do it. So maybe we should advance them some loans and then they pay us back. You say, okay, well, let's give them some loans. So you give them some loans, but they don't build toilets with the loans. They spend the money on something else. And you say, okay, well, maybe we're not going to give them some loans. Maybe maybe we'll say you build the toilet and then come to us and then we'll repay you for the cost of the toilet. But then it turns out they can't even borrow the money for the toilets, you know, because they don't feel there's going to be any return on, that, on the toilet. You know, why would there be? You know, you get returns on new cows, for example, or you think you do. We'll come back to that one in a moment. So, there's a, there's a sort of investment problem. They can't be sure that they're going to get any sort of meaningful return on this in a way which is going to make a short-term enough difference to their own well-being. And then there are other problems. You have to say, well, when they say they can't afford this, what do they mean by that they, they can't afford it? Because we're talking about generally holes in the ground, sometimes brick-built holes in the ground. We're not talking about big marble temples for these toilets. We're talking about something pretty modest. Even so, when they say they can't afford it, do they mean they just don't have the cash? Do they mean they have the cash but they want to spend it on something else? Do they mean they don't really perceive a sufficient benefit from this cash? So you can you can see that the simple problem, the apparently simple problem of persuading these people to build toilets is, is enormous. Now, eventually what happened in this case is that uh, the people working on the problem decided that they genuinely didn't have enough money but they weren't going to buy one, build one of these things if they weren't first educated about the importance of building one of these things. So it became a twin program, give them the cash, sure, but try and persuade them that they really ought to spend it on building a toilet, and then they got enough of some toilets built. After that, did this improve public health? Now, there's some old research in The Lancet, a British medical paper, which once surveyed people with medical interests in the UK and said, what was the single most important thing ever done for public health in the United Kingdom? And people said sanitation. It is unquestionably one of the most important things you can do to improve people's well-being. So what happened when they began to get these toilets finally rolled out and they tested the improvements in public health? There weren't any. There was no meaningful difference between those areas where they'd made progress and the areas where they hadn't. So they have to go back to the drawing board again and say, okay, why not? Is it because it only takes one person to defecate near the water source? And then everybody's health is impaired. So, you know, you need a level. You need 70%, 80%. Maybe it was now a problem of animal waste that was getting into the water. So you need to start thinking about well, where the, where, where the animals go, you know, and how is that related to the kind of water sources that you're using? And the simple point, really, about this story is the extraordinary complexity, the necessity of having the most expansive imagination at the outset for all the ways in which this thing could go wrong. Because it turns out that even the smallest factors could play into the eventual outcome, and that the predictability of the outcome is vulnerable to the tiny little tweaks of behavior. Did they, for example, decide that they weren't going to, they built the toilets, but then they just don't use them? Maybe there's not enough sufficient culture of using these things. They're not quite persuaded of the, the advantages, and they're in a hurry. They've got busy jobs, you know, so they don't come back to the latrine or the toilet in order to use it.
0: Let me ask you a question about it, though. Do you think one way of trying to get at this problem is to add different kinds of knowledge collection to the problem that you're, that you're trying to address? In other words, would a precursor step have been to go into the community that you are trying to help and to talk to them and try to collect a yeah. narrative around yeah. toilets, you know, and around yeah. investment and around money?
1: I think this is very true. You can have theoretical levels, you can of of understanding. You can build models. You can try and use psychological experiments in order to inform your judgments about how people might behave. You can ask them themselves, aware that their own understanding might not be thorough. They may say, "Oh, sure, we'd use those," you know, and then they don't because their neighbors don't. So they're fallible too. Even their own understanding of their circumstances and their motivation might be impaired. But yes, I think you should do all of those things. And then you have to find some way of bringing those different levels of knowledge together. So there's a very lively discussion at the moment in developmental economics about whether the high-level theory has really proved very useful in most developmental problems. Should we, for example, be concentrating on large-level incentives in order to get in education more widely adopted by some populations? Or should we be concentrating on the language, the very detailed specification, the language of the school textbooks? Maybe it's not the structures that really matter, maybe it's these really painstaking little local local practicalities, the nuts and bolts, as it's called, as we think of it. You, clearly, you need both. Unless you have some sort of theory, you may not even know what you're looking at. It could be that family relationships matter a great deal to the way, for example, people feed and bring up their children. So you need a theory of family relationships, who has power within the family, who buys the food, who has control of the food. You also need to observe these things in detail in order to test any theories that you might have about the way that the food is going to be distributed. Bringing these kind of different domains of understanding together is is an eternal work of test and retest and reevaluate and reconsider and try something new and experiment and talk and ask them again and so on and on it goes because we can never reach a state really or seldom reach a state where we think that's it we've nailed it our knowledge is thorough and complete and will work in all circumstances so mm-hmm. I'll just give you one little story that I was touching on there there was a problem of infant mortality in Tamil Nadu uh, province in India. The aid teams who went in there, they, they did, they talked to people, they talked to the local people and they discovered a fear of what was called a fear of giving birth to large babies because the health system was inadequate, frankly, and there was high maternal mortality. So women had a practice that was known as eating down. They would reduce their food consumption as they became more pregnant. This led to malnourished babies. The babies had a lower chance of survival. They were contributing unwittingly to the higher mortality of their own children. Infant mortality was very high. So the aid teams said, okay, well, actually, healthcare isn't as bad as you think it is. You know, it's improved a lot lately. And B, did you know that this is the reason why your children are dying? And have you got enough food? Because we can help you out there. And they did all of these things, and the results were astonishing this extraordinary transformation in the mortality of young children, infant mortality. So they took that scheme to another area in Bangladesh and they said, this works. The World Bank said it works. There's no doubt about this. We have strong evidence. It's one of those rare interventions where we can absolutely say this thing is good. It's kosher. They took it to Bangladesh and it didn't work. And you say, well, why not? What's different about Bangladesh? Well, what was different about Bangladesh was that it wasn't the mother in Bangladesh who was responsible for the family food, it was the mother-in-law who was still the notional head of the domestic side of the household. But they didn't talk to her about the dangers of infant mortality. They hadn't tried to make sure that she distributed the food to the mother. Maybe she gave it to her son, you know, so the husband got more of the food or whatever it was. So you can pretty easily see how that one tweak, that one little piece of what we call, I don't know, we're going to call that noise? Because here's the difference now, because that's one of those chance factors where you say, okay, is that noise? Is that the kind of thing we ought to ignore? Absolutely not. The noise, the chance factors, the randomness turns out to be the the determinant thing about the success or failure of the whole scheme.
0: I think you described that at one point in the book as a concept you call situated choice.
1: Situated choice refers to a piece of work by a couple of academics from Harvard Law School, I think, called Laub and Sampson, looking at criminality amongst teenagers through their life choice. But it's a good phrase, the notion that the determining factors can be extraordinarily local and contingent. We say, does the minimum wage work in the sense that it raises incomes without raising unemployment to, to an unacceptable level. But we don't say, does it work in some small town in Idaho compared with some other, where the situation may be different? You know, we don't, we don't, we don't say working is, is contingent to this degree, you know, this, but it often may be. And the situated choice was a, was a phrase which Laub and Sampson came up with to describe the way in which delinquents would either continue in crime or desist from crime. Because here again, you think maybe there's a large body of knowledge which can tell us. Maybe there's some regularity about their background. What have they experienced in their childhood that made them criminal and might make them more likely to desist from being criminal later in their lives? The extraordinary thing Laub and Sampson found was that there was no consistent pattern in criminal likelihood of desisting from crime or continuing. They could not find anything. And believe me, they tried. They did the longest, largest ever life course study of criminality that I'm aware of. I suspect it's the largest ever conducted. They tracked guys from the age of, well, they picked up an old study. It was quite serendipitous, funnily enough, you know, they found a whole bunch of records in the basement of the law school where the study following people's criminality from the age of about 10 through their teenage years up to around about 30-ish had been undertaken, and it was years and years ago, so they picked up all these records and they tried to trace these guys. They were all men, unfortunately, so we don't know if it applies to women, but they tried to trace them. And you know, some of them had died, some of them had shot each other, you know? some, some of them were in jail, some of them had held down a steady job for 30 years, 40 years, they were in the same marriage, and you know, some of them were still burgling houses in their 70s. So, you say, why? What, what explains the patterns that we see of recidivism or... That's so, another so... area that I work in, in criminal justice reform,
0: and we've had an extensive conversation over the last 18 months about this problem of desistance, you know, what leads to desistance in criminal behavior, and for decades, the theory has been that people simply age out. Yeah, stay, you, can, you, know?
1: you can see a general decline across all groups, but for any particular individual, will they be the one who stops or not? You know, we have our powers of prediction are just no good. We we can't right. do it.
0: One economist or criminologist who's working with us, he actually went back and reanalyzed the data, and he said, you know, the aged assistance curve doesn't really fit fit the data very well. In fact, people are making decisions to. Desist from criminal behavior. They can make that decision when they're nineteen. They can make it when they're fifty. We don't really know why. You know, we have no idea why people actually choose. But about half people who leave prison never go back. You got a high. You've got a high churn rate among the people who are offending and going back. But about half of these people are making a decision based on their first encounter with the criminal justice system not to commit crime anymore. We don't know why that happens. We don't know if we if we could sort of distill that down into, yeah. you know, what are the factors that lead to those decisions to assist. We'd have a much better shot of encouraging it. You know, but
1: it seems and, to be, and there might be something which is characteristic of the prison or the prison regime or the prisoner or the way that they're supported by their family while they're in prison or the kind of provision we make for them when they get out of provision or you know whatever they go back to when they get out of prison the complications in determining in each individual case, because they're probably not going to be the same. At one point in
0: your book, you say causes work in teams. It's never really one thing.
1: Yeah. Like all teams, you can take somebody out of that team and the whole team fails. You know, and you say, well, which, which is the person in the team who holds it together? And you say, well, well it's, it's this person, but then you take another one out and it fails as well, you know, because teams are this peculiar amalgam of all the talents and they only work, you know, they're more than the sum of the talents, you know, they don't seem to be compartmentalizable. I love that quote
0: that you had from the leader of the Toilet Project where he said something like, causation is just really, really, really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's really the challenge for all of us who work in policy and social science. You know, it's just like getting to the, what's the cause here, is just an overwhelmingly difficult challenge.
1: And I think a standard, one standard approach to that is to say that you look for the invariant you look for the feature which is common across numerous different cases. Well, that sounds sound to me. It's just the difficulty of knowing which is going to be the causative invariant because you can find that it seems to be apply in a number of cases and then you might go to Bangladesh and find it's not the invariant anymore. There's a new invariant which turns out to be the principal causal factor in this instance. And I think that's our difficulty. It's that in every change of circumstance, we're going in blind to which will be the invariant. We cross our fingers to some extent that the knowledge we've established from previous experience will apply in the next case. Well, this is the nature of noise, I think. You don't know whether you've eliminated noise if you've eliminated a potential causative factor on the next occasion. So I think in that sense, our uncertainty is always greater than we like to think that it is. There are many business examples of this this kind of problem. There's one I like, which I mentioned in the book, which is an Australian company, it was in the household DIY sort of sector. It was extremely successful. And it bought a company in the UK called Homebase and renamed Homebase. And it used all its successful techniques from Australia in the United Kingdom and within about a couple of years, the Financial Times was reporting that it was sold for $1, the whole chain. Because what they'd done is they'd said, well, it works here, it'll work there. We've accumulated enormous wisdom and understanding, we're a successful people, we have a profound understanding of the market, let's take our understanding somewhere else. But the British market was subtly different. We, The Brits responded for some way to their permanent low prices in a slightly different way, to, the way that the Aussies did. You know, we had a different culture of shopping. We expected slightly different things from our homeware stores. We didn't expect big Barbies. Apparently, we had more of a liking for fluffy decorative stuff around the house in those shops. We liked our special promotions, not permanently low prices, you know, I mean, well, at least those are the ex-post rationalizations for the failure, but whether they're the right ex-post rationalizer, uh, who knows? But what I want to come back to is the kind of overconfidence, the belief that knowledge essentially was something that transfers from one instance to another, and the sudden realize, oh, goodness it's not working. Well, who'd have thought? Well, actually, they were questioned, they were said, you know, you sure you got everything covered on this? I said, Don't insult us. Don't talk to us like we're, we're, we're a smart bunch of guys, you know, get out of here. Let's flip it around now and talk about the
0: cow story, which is okay. an interesting counter example. It was a disaster and then it worked.
1: Okay, cows. Does it pay to own a cow in India? And you think, well, yeah, it must. Yeah. I mean, here's a source of transport, a source of milk, you know, fuel. You can plow your field with it. You know, cows are the best piece of capital investment you could have, probably, aren't they? And you see people blowing in a lot of cows and they're rich. So, sure, yeah, buy a cow if you can. And there are a lot of charities who give you a cow. You know, in India, this is this is the the single object of their charitable endeavor, you know, provide people with cows. So, a team went in there and they said, okay, let's look at the returns to owning a cow. They did a pretty thorough job, I think. They, In particular, they said, okay, how much time do you spend looking after this cow and how much could you earn if you weren't spending time looking after the cow? And they reckoned that actually for the majority of cow owners, the returns were negative. It did not pay to own a cow. And you say, what? <laughs> Can this be true? You know, given the, the sort of ambition that everybody has to own a cow in India if you don't already have one. They came up with a bunch of plausible explanations, I think, for why maybe people wanted cows even though they didn't provide a re- proper return. So maybe it has something to do with religion. So here we go now. Uh, what are the causes? You know, Why do people own cows when they shouldn't, according to this piece of economic research? Is it religion because cows are sacred? Were the cows a gift? Maybe by a charity, you know? Did they simply miscalculate? Is it the result of genuine ignorance about the? when you try and factor in all the costs and benefits of owning a cow? Did they just get it wrong? But then another team went in and said, hang on, you measured the costs and benefits of having a cow over a year, which seems sensible because it's going to be seasonal. What about if you do it over three years? Because some years the summer's going to be good and some years it's going to be bad and some years the rains are going to be heavy and other years they're not. So maybe over three years, what happens then? And They found that actually the balance was much more favorable to having a cow. The point here is that you tweak the parameters of your inquiry in possibly what you might consider a relatively minor way. You realize it's a major way after the fact, but initially you might say, well, you know, a year's long enough. You know, we've covered the kind of seasonal variation that should do it. But then you reanalyze the data. You just look at these things from a slightly different perspective, hold the thing up to the light with a slightly different angle. You know, and is the castle still there or does it disappear now? subsequently, of course, the original team came back and said, no, no, we stand by our data. And then somebody else did a similar exercise in Kenya, and in Kenya they said, yes, it does pay off. It really pays off, but there might be two different types of cows in common use, and maybe we need to make allowances for those. And so you think, well, maybe we ought to make allowance for the potential owners as well, as well as the country, as well as the season, as well as how long you look at the value of the cow. I mean, what about if you sell it at the end? or slaughter it for meat in this country? Do you have to do the calculation again? So that's a nice illustration of the way I think that this great hidden half of variables can apply, not just in the world itself, but in the way that we frame the problem for our examination of it. There can be little tweaks of noise in the parameters of our investigation, which lead us to completely contrary results. Another good illustration of that I'll give you which was a group made available all the information about the main soccer leagues, Football, we call it football, you call it soccer, in Europe. And they said, if you're from a racial minority, are you more likely to get sent off, chucked off the pitch, given a red card, as we say, you're more likely to get a red card if you're from a racial minority. And they gave them all the data, and the, I think it was something like 18 teams had a go at this. Depending on the way in which they approached the problem, they came up with radically different answers. Some of them said yes, some of them said no. But the yeses and the nos were miles apart. Some of them said, "Well, yeah, it's a multiple more likely to be sent off if you're." Others were saying, oh, it's a fine thing." Others were saying, "Well, it depends on which team is playing at home, which is the home side, and whether the player from the ethnic minority is a member of the home team or the you know." So there were. You could cut the data in a variety of different ways, but the key thing was that this overall conclusion, this overall conclusion was sensitive to small differences in the way that you analyze the data. So, your decision-making about how you do that analysis, now, had there only been one team, you can imagine what would have been said. Okay, we've done this research, we've discovered that there there is a prejudicial attitude amongst referees towards players from ethnic minorities, full stop. Because we can see that there were 18 investigations of this kind, (laughs) we now understand that no such general conclusion was possible. Or at least you have to aggregate them all and say, well, it looks on balance as if there probably is some prejudice and it's of this order, but there is considerable uncertainty on either side of it. And this, I think, is the danger that if we're unaware of the potential ways in which we could have asked the questions. We come to an overconfident interpretation of the evidence based on just one. I have
0: to I have to tell you, Michael, that's not going to sell newspapers. (laughs) (laughs) Let's transition to medicine because we want to talk a little bit about that. And then from there we can wrap up with some of your thoughts on the COVID pandemic and the statistical warfare that's being conducted around that. So but talk a little bit about, about medicine some of the great I would just based on your reading reading of your book, some of the great uncertainty that we face around medical trials.
1: You know, I should say initially say I'm a tremendous supporter of randomized controlled trials. I think they are one of the most ingenious tools we've ever had for discovering essentially what works. I know there were criticisms of them, I think some of the criticisms are overdone. Nevertheless, the evidence we get from randomized controlled trials Which are the main tool of discovering whether medicines work can be an extremely limited form of knowledge. It is knowledge, I think, but the key thing to understand is that it's probabilistic knowledge and the scale on which the probabilities work is often extremely large. So you have to take vast numbers of people in order to detect differences between one group and another as a result of a medical intervention sometimes. What that means is that if you have to look at a lot of people in order to detect some influence from an intervention, our understanding of whether it'll work for you as an individual becomes correspondingly weaker. So I'll illustrate that with a few examples. You take something like the top 10 medicines sold in the United States, top 10 selling medicines in the United States, and you say, okay, well, these things work. You know, they've passed all the regulatory hurdles, a lot of physicians have great confidence in them. We assume they work. But what does it mean to say they work? Well, in some instances amongst those top 10, they work in only one in 25 of the patients who take them. So for any individual to say, will this work for me, you have almost no predictive value whatsoever. It's a one in 25 chance that on this occasion it'll work for me. Do they work across a population? Absolutely. If you get thousands and thousands of people in each arm of a trial, you would see a clear difference between one group and another. So the thing to understand here, I think, which I think none of us is very good at communicating on the whole, is that utterly robust probabilistic knowledge at the population level, can be consistent, perfectly consistent with near total ignorance at the individual level. (laughs) and This is the position we find ourselves with a great many medical interventions. Now I said, you know, some of these drugs, they only work in one in 25 people. It's actually even worse than that, our understanding, because they may work one time in 25 people or they may work on one occasion out of 25 occasions. So they may work four percent of the time or they may work four percent of the people, which means they might work in you sometimes, but not other times, depending what else is going on in your body or in your life or whatever the drugs you're taking and so on. And we're not quite sure in any instance which, which is true. So the, the figure I gave you at the beginning is, is a number called the number needed to treat, needed to treat 25 people in order to get one success. Numbers needed to treat pretty controversial for exactly that reason. Because we don't know if we're actually talking about how many people you need or how many events you need. (laughs) The way that we set up our clinical trials are never going to give us that information. So it's just a way, again, of trying to emphasize that we think we have regularity of knowledge. We think we have transferable knowledge. We have a drug that works, but what, what works means might be very close to meaning nothing very helpful at all in the individual instance. And this difference between population and individual level causality, it's an absolute headache. Here's a real teaser, which is an illustration of the same principle. If you have an entire country that smokes cigarettes, and you compare it to a country where nobody smokes, you're going to get a lot of cancer in the country where the people smoke. And you're going to be able to say, okay, smoking causes the cancer. This is the variable, you know, and it's invariant. <laughs> this is just kind of time and again. We see that there are far more cases of cancer in countries that are like this. But then you say, imagine a country where everybody smokes. Who gets cancer and who doesn't? becomes a matter of pure luck. If they all smoke the same number of cigarettes, you might as well call it pure luck. There may be genetic differences, but even people with the same genes might have different outcomes, and I'll, I'll, I'll try and explain that in a moment so you say at an individual level it's pure luck but at a population level it's obvious cause how are these two things consistent but they are consistent and you know a death from cancer because of smoking is a combination actually of both luck and cause it doesn't make any sense to say that it's one or the other i know people like to you know try and recruit one of these one side or the other in their arguments about smoking But the truth is that at the individual level, our powers of prediction can be very poor. We can't even explain why they got the cancer at a population level. We can. We can say it's because you're all smoking. At an individual level, it's much harder. Now, how how far does that go? Well, I find this one mind-boggling. So you say, okay, if it's really difficult to understand the causality between two different people, what about within one person? Surely all the causal forces are identical within one person, yeah? I mean what could be the you're exposed to a complete correspondence of environmental effects. They're all the same. Your genes are the same. You know, there's just one of you. You have the same genes throughout your whole body. So how come it is that if you get cancer in one breast, you don't get it in the other? Genes are the same, the environmental exposure is the same. The actual correspondence of cancer if you've already had cancer in one breast, how likely are you to get it in the other, is not very much raised from the risk that would exist for a stranger. We're assuming here there are no, none of the really big genetic effects on cancer, like the BRCA gene, for example, BRCA1, BRCA2. In this respect, your other breast is more like that of a stranger than it is like its own twin. So you could follow the entire life course for this person. <laughs> You could examine their genome. You could look at the epigenetic effects because they're all the same as well, and you could say, "Okay, tell me why one breast has cancer and not the other? Why does it develop in one and not the other?" And you would never come up with an answer.
0: To switch over to the COVID question, the UK went through a sort of startling reversal in policy early on in the crisis. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his advisors initially thought, "Well." let us let it rip. You know, we'll just let it build up herd immunity here. That'll be the fast way through the crisis." And then almost immediately switched directions and went to a lockdown. What did you make of that whole conversation as it was going on?
1: It's somewhat contested (laughs) how much of a U-turn this really was. The government's account of that period is that essentially it was timing. The degree of its interventions and one of the considerations there was how much would the public stomach and I think there's a reasonable question really about how much evidence do the people have to see before they're willing to tolerate dramatic change in their lives and maybe it was the case that we had really to be scared witless before we would accept The degree of lockdown that the government eventually imposed. So, you know, you could maybe muster a little bit of sympathy for the political predicament there. My own view is that actually we should be slightly sympathetic to the difficulties of anybody trying to model or impose policy here, because the the sensitivity of the outcome is so great to small tweaks of the system. Just a, a small illustration of that. Let's say the initial parameters are that you're infectious for seven days and you infect two other people. Scenario A. Scenario B, let's say you're infectious for five days and you infect three other people. After 10 weeks, Scenario gives you A gives you about 2,000 cases. Scenario B, you're rattling up to 10 million. You get a small, what seems like a small tweak in the parameters and you've produced a different world. Do you know precisely what the parameters should be? Do me a favor, nobody knows precisely what the parameters should be and when we're constructing our models the uncertainties small uncertainties very much really in in line with the ideas that we we developed through chaos theory and so on small changes in initial conditions can produce radically different effects further down the line we don't you start listing some of the don't knows you know the epistemic, epistemic humility we don't know how many people have it have had it and our ability to count, because we don't know how many asymptomatic cases there are, we don't know what proportion are asymptomatic, we don't know the lethality rate, we don't know the infection fatality rate. It might vary from one country to another for reasons that we don't fully understand. It's quite likely, in my view, that it will vary. There won't be one fatality rate. There will be multiple fatality rates in different places according to their health systems, according to how crowded the cities are and so on, their ways of living, and according to the viral load that they're initially exposed to and so on. We're embarked on lockdown, as you are, but we don't really know how we're going to get out of it. That depends on a whole other bunch of unknowns. Will we get a vaccine? How long will it take? How effective will it be? Can we do test and trace? Will our test and trace be reliable enough in individual cases to certify people that they can go back out into the community again? Or, or will it have an error rate, which just makes that too dangerous? Just the unknowns, they go on and on and on. In a state of severe uncertainty, I think you have to say, well, what's the reasonable thing to do? There, I think there is some place for modeling worst case scenarios. I would not assume that the worst case scenario is going to be the correct one, but I would certainly know, want to know what it was. I would want my policy to be very adaptable, because adaptability seems to me to be a proper, proper state for anybody who's facing radical uncertainty. I would expect quite often to have to tweak policy. So in the United Kingdom, for example, we said, okay, we're going we're gonna to cut the number of tube trains, underground trains in London, because we want people to travel less. Well, a lot of them felt that they had to travel anyway, so the trains got more crowded. They initially became more crowded, and you had people absolutely cheek by jowl, you know, breathing each other's air, you know, in the worst possible conditions for the transmission of the virus. Now, This was in the name of safety. We shut down all the sporting events and then people went out into the countryside and they actually set records <laughs> for the number of people who went up Mount Snowdon, you know, kind of great beauty spot in Wales. So we had to shut that down too. So, you know, you can see that ex people are going to say, well, we should have known. And maybe we kind of had an inkling that there might be some unintended consequences, but did we really fully understand the way in which this whole thing was likely to happen? Of course we didn't. Of course we didn't. You know the 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 causation is so complicated when you're dealing with a huge population behavior to an entirely novel circumstance. This is a kind of hurricane of uncertainty. I think I saw it described by one one writer on risk. And meanwhile, what do we do? We start we start blaming in the UK the blame for the government. But here's a scenario worth considering: What if in the period after the Great Recession of two thousand and eight a government in our country had suddenly decided it was going to start stockpiling ventilators, when everybody would probably say, what are you doing that for? What about all the other the urgent claims on our money? You guys are crazy. This makes no sense. The chances are very low of this pandemic. We, yeah, we know there's going to be, but why now? You know, were, come on, this is a no-brainer. So the kind of ex-post claim that there was more knowledge than there really was, well, knowing that a pandemic was likely one day, does not seem to me to translate easily into a set of political actions. Dan Gardner, who writes about risk, he says, what you really need is not a a kind of one-off judgment. You need a a completely different approach to risk evaluation, which goes on year after year, which is depoliticized, and becomes a much more rational analysis of the different risks involved in the many many varieties of low probability, high impact events that we could. Consider catastrophic geomagnetic storm, where, where are the people out on the street on that one? <laughs> you know, where are the protests, where are the columnists, mm-hmm. you know, Those you, uh, you uh, want tail events? You know, there are dozens of them that we could be worrying about right yeah. now and nobody's saying, come on, no brainer, do it now, yeah. do it now. Nobody is saying that. Right. So, you know, the tendency to think we knew, we knew and we knew what to do and it's outrageous. Yeah, sure, kind of.
0: listening to you talk about this, I started thinking about sort of where things have headed in the last week in the U.S. on COVID with, you know, we started out with the President saying, I have absolute authority to reopen the economy across the entire country, which is absolutely not true. He doesn't have that kind of authority that's reserved to the governors under our Constitution. And throughout the week, it's kind of morphed into, yeah, you know, I think we're really gonna let the governors make this decision. And that seems to me to be sort of stumbling into the right policy using your frame of analysis, because it's really talking about how do we get the right policy for a given region of the country rather than the right policy for the country. The country's too big to manage centrally on any question, I think, but particularly on this where local conditions are going to vary so much. And it's going to be I wrote a short piece on this yesterday. The, the hardest decisions of the crisis are just now upon us because they're going to require the sort of attention to data, finely grained data at the local level mm. to really be able to say when we open, which industries under what conditions. And those are going to be, have to be made, you know, by people that are very close to the problem rather than very far
1: away. I agree with you. I mean, I've watched your president's Decision making, and uh, although I say, well, I'm sympathetic to the to the unknowns, so I I don't see a great deal of epistemic humility. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You, know. you don't see humility. You don't see humility. You not have to say epistemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's kind of getting there. I think I agree with you that there seems a good deal of sense in trying to evaluate local circumstances. I I imagine that across the United States, they are going to differ pretty radically. I can see that in California, they were quite quick to introduce restrictive measures, and it seems to have paid off, and it could be that they'll be able to move more quickly on easing some of those measures, assuming that they have confidence in their ability to do the dance after the hammer, the dance, as I think the Chinese talk about it, the test and trace. In a way which is going to contain the spread of the virus at a much lower level so the health services can function. Yeah, I think it's going to be a contingent decision, and I think that's right. I don't envy the people who have to make it. There are clearly health and life costs involved in suppressing the economy yeah. to the extent, mm-hmm. and we don't really have a full grasp of what those are. I think lockdown is right. I think it's right. I hope it's right. I hope we haven't done it in a way which is in the end going to prove counterproductive. You know, if it takes us, if test and trace doesn't work, you know, if it proves unreliable and we get big flare-ups and we finish up having intermittent lockdowns for three years until we come up with a a vaccination, now does anybody tell me for sure that that's not going to happen? If we get to that point, by then we'll be thinking, did we get this right? You know, so there there, there are quite a lot of such serious level of uncertainty around this thing that I think keeping the conversation civil, I think, would be a good thing to do just because the uncertainties are huge. And before shooting our mouths off, could we be wrong? You betcha. Yeah. I I mean, I could be wholly wrong about all that I've said, and I'm quite prepared for that.
0: Well, Michael, thank you so much for all of your time today. This is a fascinating discussion. For those who are listening to this podcast, while you're locked away in your house, you could do a lot worse than spending a few hours reading. The Hidden Half by Michael Blassen, which I think is, it's the best kind of naysaying and second guessing that I can think of because it really does ask us to approach life, our own lives, the lives of our countries and our communities in a much more humble fashion, which I think is, is always good advice. There's a lot we don't know, and what we don't know can get us into a lot of trouble. So Michael, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to speaking to you again soon.
1: Thank you, Brent, it's been a pleasure. Really, really appreciate the questions and the chance to talk to you, thank you. Thank you for joining us
0: on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orrell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.